0: For the last 30 years, when conservation efforts have been very focused here in Costa Rica, we're seeing a difference. We're seeing a difference to what we're doing because the first turtles we released 20, 25 years ago are now coming back to nest.
1: Welcome to Annamalia's Podcast, where every week we're discussing something in the world of wildlife and climate. My name is Anna Lee.
2: And I'm Nare. And I am James. And this week, we are going to be discussing the the impact coronavirus is having on a lot of wild and captive uh, animals out there. If everybody remembers, about a month ago, we discussed sort of some of the positives uh, and silver lining of the global shutdown, and dips in pollution levels, and some nature reemerging in lots of interesting ways. I shared the story of my bees, and all that is still happening. And uh, by you know, for the most part, and very, very positive. But there's also a lot of, uh, you know, uh, downside to this as well. And that's that most of the programs set up to protect and service uh, wild animals and captive animals are really hurting from a funding standpoint. That's because both sides are really funded primarily by, you know, grants and donations as well as tourism. And of course, in a recession, government grants and donations are pulled and, you know, being pointed towards human survival right now. And tourism is, of course, completely dead um, for now, given the global shutdown. And so as a result, animals living in captivity, such as elephants in Thailand, are going without food. Um, And we'll give some examples of that. And then animals that are in the wild, rhinos, sea turtles, are losing some of their protective resources, um, and poaching is becoming more rampant. Um, we're actually going to talk to Nikki Wheeler, who is the one of the um, executives leading uh, Latin America sea turtles, which is, of course, our partner on our sea turtle, Sheridan Animalia, and she'll share some more details. So in, in Thailand, Save the Elephants, which is a great organization, um, uh, has estimated that up to 1,000 captive elephants, there's about 4,000 in Thailand today. Uh, may die um, over the next couple months through starvation, just because there's just a lack of lack of food. Um, an elephant will eat, you know, a little over 250 kilos of food a day, so it's a big expense. I can speak to, you know, the work at Mandalau where, where I'm a part of, and say that our biggest expense is uh, is feed um, for for the elephants. So that and, and they're they're thinking about maybe the only way to save them is to actually bring them back to logging services, which is incredibly physically demanding and debilitating for elephants, but it it creates revenue um, or selling them back to fund well-funded zoos around the world, uh, particularly in China, uh, where they will pay a pretty penny. Um, Nobody wants to do that, but it's sort of like, is it that or starvation? It's a tough decision, right? Um, There's zoos around the world that, are having to decide on whether or not they euthanize some of their animals or, or literally feed them to each other. And, and, and just being practical, like if there's no revenue, there's no ability to feed and, and take care of them. Um, you know, what are your options? Um, and then uh, I was reading about Nico Jacobs of not Rhino 911, which is a sort of anti-poaching aerial service in South Africa. And, uh, Nico said that literally every day since uh, the South Africa lockdown went into place, poaching activity has increased and increased. And that's because the, the ranger patrol on the ground um, is not there. Um, It's not, they're not being paid. They're not out there. They're home bunkering down, staying safe. Uh, But then the poachers who are, you know, they spend their whole life taking risks, right. Poaching is a very, very risky uh, profession. If you want to call it that to be in they're fine with the risk of being out there. And, and in fact, it's less risky now because there's less patrol. So a, those are just some sort of tangible examples of what's what's happening out there. Um,
3: I think there's like, with this whole idea of uh, nature getting back to its normal and thriving because we're not out there, it is amazing. And it, it kind of fits into the idea that humans, that climate change is caused by humans. And if we... Basically stopped activity, then things would go back to normal. Um, that's that's something that's very prevalent, and everybody really buys into that because it's just so easy. It it somewhat takes the responsibility away from us actively doing things rather than not doing. Like it's not just about not harming stuff, which would still be great because most of us do the harm, and there are still poachers and stuff out there. But I think it misses the point of how much work is being done by some other humans who are there to actively help and you know change things in the positive direction and because there is this work going on and there is funding and stuff like it's not it's not out there like nobody talks enough about it nobody knows enough about it and nobody knows about the need of it that's why right now when we are thinking about human survival and how are we going to adapt as a society to this new virus situation that's going to be completely forgotten which is a huge shame so I think there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in that way like these people like Nikki like you guys like everyone else is working actively to change things for the better rather than just not you know I'm not gonna do much like I'm just gonna try to commute less or eat less animal produce and so on that's not the only way like that is not enough right now with the timeline that we have so I think the work of humans in a positive way kind of needs to be brought to spotlight to gain more recognition and also it needs to be cool and people understanding that it's the right thing to do and it is cool will donate more money more attention and so on to that I think that's that's like completely not out there like I could not name projects like on my (laughs) fingers that I know of that are actively doing this stuff and not because I'm not interested in it but just because it's just not it's just not there it's not talked about so um I think that's that's something that could be worked on and maybe both by the media by everybody that cares about this stuff and yeah just in general through public attention shift
2: um Nardi your point I want to ask you like so I agree it's just not in top of people's mind. But how would you how would you address this to somebody who says, Hey, like I'm I'm dealing with job loss or I'm dealing with anxiety, you know, over my family's health and things like that? Don't tell me about animals and poaching and wildlife. Like it's just uh, that's just not my priority and I can't believe you would even think it would be a priority given the, the human pain going on right now. What how do you answer something um... like that?
3: I mean, that's a that's a very valid point. And I, I think there's a whole debate about animal rights and, you know, animals being equal to humans or not. And, and that's a, kind of a broader conversation. But I, I don't want to tap into that. I, I guess to most of those people, if you bring them an example of their, you know, in-house pet, like their cat or their dog starving uh, because of COVID, um, it, suddenly it would kind of hit home to them a lot quicker than thinking about an elephant somewhere in, uh, you know, Laos or anywhere else in the world starving to death. And um, I think very few, there will be people who will definitely, uh, you know, will be cold to even cats and dogs starving, but a lot less than those who will have this cold emotion towards elephant starving. So I think it's really important in education and in media and in, in the stories that we tell to to make them more relatable and closer to to people because there is not much difference and um the more we i guess my point is the more we we can relate to this uh the easier it is to grasp it and then there's also like scientific facts uh even if we get through this uh in a successful way and we probably will through Covid and everything through a recession and so on um realistically our children and their kids have a very, very squeezed timeline where they can have a normal life or what we would like to consider normal for them. So um, you're not just doing it for, for the sake of doing it. There's a realistic threat that if we don't protect nature and wildlife, then, you know, COVID is just going to seem like a children's game to what's going to happen further on. And, And I think not enough people realize this, like until it happens to you, it's, I guess COVID is also like a great example, right? Until somebody falls ill that you know, like you think it just doesn't exist. The virus isn't there. Like a lot of people have been very skeptical and are still skeptical. You know, they will see people dying all over the world and still think, oh, this is just made up so that we can, you know, be controlled by government. So um, we need to make this more relatable so that people understand better. Cause unfortunately we only understand through our own experience. I don't know if that answers your question, but I I definitely try to dive in into, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really bad. Everybody's losing their job. But, you know, if your dog didn't have food because of that, would you feel bad? Would you do everything to kind of make sure your dog has food and then take it from there and talk about the bigger issues, I guess? I don't know if it makes sense. I... Yeah,
2: it, it makes sense. But I, you know, I think what what worries me is like, I don't, I don't want this issue to just be boiled down to, you know um, like just the kind of the current issue of the lack of like food, for example, because obviously the mere fact, right. That we have to supplement elephants food because they don't, we're not, we're taking them out of the wild in the first place or not protecting the wild where they can easily feed themselves. That to me is the still so a larger issue at play. Yeah, here. but you have to break it down, um, right? Because because
3: and... otherwise, for most people, like for the average person, it's this: the bigger the problem, the harder it is to feel for it in a way. So, um, like unfortunately, it is right like like that. Like it's it's a much bigger issue. But then, the more you're able to break it down, then the easier it is to appeal to. It's like showing a picture of uh, a little girl that is very often used by you know i don't know uh unicef and other organizations uh save the children instead of talking about numbers thousands of people dying you would just show a picture of a little girl that's starving and then people are more likely to donate and help it's the same i guess psychological thing to break it down to um and and maybe you're more optimistic thinking that we can talk about the bigger picture and try to make changes but um yeah i um, i don't see that happening at least in the near future
2: you have to give people something small and tangible they can do and feel good about. And that might be right now donating 10 bucks to Latin America sea turtles to keep this generation of leatherback eggs alive, which we'll talk about in a second with Nikki. So you have to give people that and at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, you have to make some bigger changes to our system from an information, from a regulatory, from a cultural level to, you know, change these things for the long term. So I guess what I'm hearing from both of you is, it's sort of not a, it's not a, you know, this or that. It's a you have to kind of be doing both simultaneously.
3: Yes. And it's, it's a lot of work. Um, um, I think involving a lot more people and educating more people about this is probably number one priority.
2: Uh, why don't we mm. quick segue over to a conversation with Nikki um, and her work on uh, in Costa Rica with uh, sea turtles and what's happening right now with her. Cool.
1: Today we're thankful to be joined by a conservationist and friend of animals, coming all the way from the Latin American Sea Turtle Association. Her work has been directly impacted by COVID-19 and she is here to talk further on how the coronavirus has impacted conservations worldwide.
0: So yeah, my name is Nikki Wheeler. I uh, live in Costa Rica. I've been here for nearly 17 years, working with sea turtle populations, um, both in the water and on the coasts, on nesting beaches.
1: We learned that Nikki actually got involved in the conservation space after leaving a dead end job and flying across the world to Costa Rica to volunteer with sea turtles. Um, and
0: here I still am, 17 years later. It changed absolutely everything for me. Everything
2: what's your what, what is your favorite thing about working with sea turtles?
0: Uh, I think there's so many positives to working with sea turtles. One obviously is we know we're working with an endangered species. We know that these populations are declining year by year, um, especially in the last thirty years where we've seen a decline of eighty percent of the world populations. You know, so it's huge, just the rapid rate of, of of almost extinction that we're seeing. So being able to work with these species is a complete privilege. Uh, so that's one of my favorite things, I think. I just think it makes them really special and, and really worth protecting.
2: Can you share a little bit about sort of the perhaps the broader role sea turtles play in their ecosystem and why they're so important to our oceans?
0: Yeah, I mean, every species of sea turtle has its own role to play in the ecosystem. Uh, So here in Costa Rica, we have five of the seven species on the planet uh, that come to our beaches or our shallow waters to feed or to reproduce or to lay their eggs. So we're really lucky to have that diversity of species here. And every one of those species has their own uh, role to play. So, for example, um, the Hawksville turtle, she feeds on sponges. Uh, on coral reefs, and sponges can often suffocate the coral reef. So she is keeping the coral reefs in check by feeding on the sponges that are going to be suffocating our corals. Green turtles, for example, they eat seagrass. Uh, they're vegetarians. They eat a lot of seagrass, especially when they're mature, and they keep the the ocean bed uh, in check. So they keep it. They it avoids erosion um, from big wave events and things like this. So you know, all of these different species have their different. Place in the planet, uh, so ecologically they're really, really important for us.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so let's let's jump into talking about uh, the coronavirus and and how it's you know not only impacting your work um, Latin America sea turtles, but sort of the broader uh, sea turtle ecosystem and and uh, and welfare and conservation.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's been a shock to the system for us in more than one way i think like from an, an environmental perspective um you know we have to look at what's going to happen in the future you know the turtles that are generally nesting now are going to have uh, depending on the species but about a two-year cycle so they're going to come and lay their eggs every two years so if we can't protect these eggs that are being laid this year um when these babies that are going to be born this year reach theoretically sexual maturity in 20 or so years um, you know this is their lifespan so if we can't protect these nests now in 20 years there's not going to be any adult turtles coming to nest you know so we're not going to see the impact of this for a good few years on a nesting perspective Uh, so you know it's really important that we have to try and protect all the nests that we can this year and that's becoming really really difficult we don't have the manpower anymore Uh, because most of the volunteers have cancelled. There's travel restrictions here in Costa Rica, so not even local people, um, and Costa Rican people can come and help protect nests. Uh, You know, so that kind of thing is really difficult. We're literally on just our key workers. We have a biologist and one research system. So we have, at the moment, two people to protect seven kilometers of beach. Um, When we're talking about protecting nests, we're talking about mitigating the effects of climate change. Uh, So that includes things like beach erosion, rising sea levels, when all of these things happening on the beach, we can take the nest and relocate it to a safe area. Uh, But if we don't have the manpower to do that, all of these nests are being left at risk. So that's one of the main points I think that we're, we're suffering. We don't have manpower. Um, and obviously the lack of income, our projects and our conservation efforts are almost 99% funded by volunteer participation and outside help. We don't receive any funding from the local governments. Uh, so that's really hard when our income has literally gone from a healthy 1000 something volunteers per year to zero overnight. Like, And I think it's not just us, it's almost every conservation project on the planet is feeling the same thing. So that just means our income has been reduced to zero. We have had to, you know, fire staff. Uh, Local community members can't have their salaries, so they now don't want to work at the project because they're not receiving any salaries. Uh, So that aspect for us is really, really difficult. All of us that work for organisation have taken cuts uh, voluntarily um, to try and keep us afloat and keep us alive. Unfortunately, the local community members that were working at the project and after years and years of environmental education efforts and um, convincing them to to be involved in conservation efforts now run very real risk of actually returning to poaching because they have no other food source. Uh, So all of these impacts are are what we're seeing now and so I I don't think we're going to see the full um, impact for a good few years.
1: Nikki, can you elaborate further on the connection between poaching and the coronavirus and why we've seen poaching increase in this time? Yeah,
0: in Paquari Beach, where we work, we're working with the endangered leatherback turtle. And there's, you know, unfortunately, turtles uh, choose um, to nest. I suppose they don't choose to nest. They come to nest. Um, In very remote areas where there's no built up cities, there's no development, there's no light pollution, there's no contamination. So these areas are generally inhabited by um, populations that are living in very rural villages. So this is one of our main concerns uh, is that, you know, poachers are always present. They always are. But generally we have the manpower to overcome the few poachers that are are on the beach you know we have a quite a good ratio of saving the nests that we have so without this manpower we're finding now there's actually one more poachers on the beach because people are losing their jobs people are losing their incomes people have families to feed there's very little government help here for people that have lost employment Uh, so people are becoming a little bit more desperate uh, for a food source. And unfortunately, turtle eggs are a very good food source. And it's very common to eat this kind of thing in Central America. It's, it's very, very normal. Uh, so it's becoming very, uh, we're having a lot more poachers coming in from outlying villages, not necessarily the community where we're working, but they're coming from outlying towns and villages to our beach to see what they can get. Um, generally, if a poacher takes a nest full of eggs, a leatherback can lay anything between 180 and 120 eggs in one nest. Uh, so they could probably take 20 or 30 eggs to feed their family and they can sell the rest on the black market. And there's a very big black market for them. So this is this is one of our major issues is we don't have the manpower now to cover the beach. Uh, so this is why the poachers are coming um taking the eggs there's way more poachers because they're more desperate and we just don't we
2: just can't cover the amount of beach that we have in in terms of slowing down that sort of uh that demand for sea turtle eggs other back eggs for consumption do you what do you think you know will have a bigger impact is it more about actual like regulation and enforcing it and enforcing fines and penalties um, and that sort of uh, that kind of system? Or do you think it's more about, you know, a cultural change is needed or, in terms of like more sort of public shaming, frankly, uh, and, and generally shaming of eating these eggs um, and changing sort of local cultures? What, what do you think is, is more impactful if you had to prioritize between those two? I mean, to be honest, both work just as well as each other. At the moment, you know, all
0: sea turtle produce, so that could mean the meat, the eggs, the shell, uh, the nest, the turtles, everything is actually already protected by law. Uh, but there's very little implementation of that law because we're talking about very, very rural areas. So there's no authorities patrolling these areas and checking up. When um, something does happen, so if, if a person is caught with bags of turtle eggs and meat, um uh, uh, and selling these things the sanctions are actually pretty harsh but the actual catching them is another matter completely so we're talking about you know a seven kilometer stretch of isolated beach where there's no there's nothing so that's really hard is actually implementing the law when there's very little um like authority in the area that's going to be patrolling with us every night so that's one of our big problems also they are protected but it's just very hard to implement The other side, yeah, I mean, environmental education, we've had an environmental education program running, especially around the areas that we've been working for the last 20 odd years. Uh, Mm. Now, obviously, Mm. lack of funding, it's all closed down. We've had to just completely stop the environmental education. So, you know, maybe years of work is gonna be undone um, due to the situation that we're all living in at the moment. Um, Culturally, really hard to change, really hard to change the whole culture. It will work eventually. Eventually I think with environmental education programs, working with schools, uh, working with different NGOs and organizations around, it will eventually have some positive effect. Um, but without those programs, it's 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 really hard uh, to change a whole culture of, of a country.
3: During how hard the situation is right now, it's basically harder than it was before and with the lack of funding and everything, what are the next steps do you think? Are you just going to wait out and, are you planning, like doing some contingency planning? Like what are the next steps to not end up in the worst yeah. case scenario? I mean, and that is really what we are
0: here are all kind yeah. of thinking about at the minute. I think our main priority is just to survive at the moment. We have mm-hmm. cut down to the bare minimum of, of outgoings um, to just try to get through this. Because at the end of the day, there's so many NGOs here in Costa Rica that have had to close down. And had to stop working, and it just means that more and more beaches are becoming unprotected. So I think our priority is just to hang in there, you know, just to hang in there and and hold on. We're trying to um, just do as much international awareness as we can. We've got various donation campaigns running. Um, all of these, uh, like different articles that we're sharing about our work, you know, for, and we've got a big network of people behind us, um, such as Animalia and James and and Anneli. You know, we've all been working together, and we have various people in different strategic points all trying to help uh, because we know how serious this is. If we can't, even though there's only two of us, if we can't be on that beach, then every single nest is going to get taken. You know, so I think our main priority is just hanging in there. You know, we hope that it's not going to last, but no one knows what's going to happen in the next week, let alone the next month. It's a really difficult situation because we can't really plan anything. All we can do is cut right back. We're all working from home. We're all like constantly trying to look at different ways where we can get more people to help out, uh, get more funding, uh, get more information out there. Um, and, And I think that's our priority at the moment.
1: And for all the people listening, wherever they are across the world, Nikki, can you give us some advice on what's the most explicit and forward way to help Latin American Sea Turtles Association continue to do the magnificent work that they're doing?
0: I think, I mean, obviously we have donations campaigns going on, which they're very transparent and very open. So people can see that even with a ten dollar donation, you can make a huge difference. You know, so I think there's there's several campaigns, and that's the obvious way is by donating. But we know that everyone is financially in a difficult situation at the moment, um, and it's not always going to be easy for people to donate. So my recommendation would to be like inform yourself. You know, read articles, read. You know. Uh, correct information and credited information and find out what's happening in different areas of the world and in different situations because not every country is living this the same way and I think uh, you know there's a lot of really great people out there doing really great things and I think that's the most important thing is if people can learn from this experience and come out the other side maybe a little bit different because I don't, as personally, I don't really want to go back to what was normal before. I think this is the perfect opportunity for us to change things um, and come out the other side and maybe a little bit more positive and a little bit better. So I think information is gonna be a really, really important. So keep updated, keep information coming in, share stuff that you find important and and interesting. And I think that's a good way of educating the population. Absolutely.
2: Nikki, on that point, How do people actually get the right information? Because, you know, the internet is so cluttered, it's so noisy. It really is. Uh, You're not gonna be able to Google search, you know, sea turtle information and and get the right, and know the right trusted sources. Like, where do you actually go to get the right information? I think, you know,
0: with any organization that does work with wildlife, and I'm sure, I think me and you, James, have spoken about this before, but any organization that works with wildlife, whatever animal it is, and whatever country it is, they need to have permits from the government to do what they do. So, you know, generally, if an organization can't produce that paperwork or produce those permits, then they're not probably authorized to do what they're doing. So that would be my like the one thing that I could say to people. You can ask to see people's permits. You can ask for any publications. You can ask to see legal documents to find out if an organization is actually doing things legally. Um, but yeah, the internet is a bit of a crazy place. And, and I think you have to sift through your sources, I think is probably a good one to look at as well. What source are you coming through? If it's not credited by anything, then it's probably not worth taking notice of.
2: If I was to sort of put in front of you, you know, kind of the, the profile, the most sort of climate change defiant person who, you know, will tell you, or let's say maybe a different profile. Let's just say somebody who says, look, I hear what you're saying and I'm saddened by it, but sea turtles don't really impact mm-hmm. my life. Um, and uh, I, we, you know, I just need to, you know, I just need to take care of people, not sea turtles. Um, what would, what are, you, what are your answer to that type of person who, you know, obviously it, you know, has, has, has their priorities, but how do you, how do you get enough people to, to care about this issue when there's, you know, other things that they're going through?
0: The thing is I would probably um, just call them out and say, well, actually I think every human being on this planet depends on the ocean to survive. If we don't have the ocean, if we don't have water, and if we don't have these animals in the ocean that actually keep everything in check for us, then there won't be human life. So I would probably call them out that way. You know, that everybody needs the ocean. And regardless of what species we're interested in, everybody needs the ocean. So I think that would probably be my one. Uh, also, you know, uh, turtle groups. You know, turtles need us to survive. Now, you know, it's there's a lot of animals that live in the wild um, and they keep reproducing and t- continuing in the wild. But turtles need our help. If we're not on those beaches protecting those eggs, you know, they're going to get taken. So turtles are at a very real risk of becoming extinct without human help. So that would be my two probably major points. Is They probably can't survive without us and, you know, we need the oceans.
2: Well, Nikki, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, And, you know, kudos uh, for all the, you know, uh, the incredible work you do not just now, but for the last decade. Um, And, uh, you know, we're obviously going to do everything we can to help. And, and for folks listening, we're going to include a link to Nikki's organization's GoFundMe page, as well as a link to their organization in general um, within the podcast. So, you can find out more more there. Okay, it's an absolute
0: pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving me some space to to sit and talk about turtles. I'm always happy to do that.
2: Absolutely. It's always fun talking. Uh, thank you <laughs> Thanks Anna. Yeah,
0: thank nice you. to Have
2: meet you all. Well. Thanks. And welcome back. Um thank you Nikki again for for joining us and as a reminder for everybody, um you can You know, right now, go ahead and contribute directly to um, Nikki's organization through the link um, we're going to share in the podcast. So I think that's a good segue into the sort of last topics here. The first one being, you know, what are some of those immediate short term things you can do uh, to help out? And then talking about sort of some of the longer term challenges we need to tackle as well uh, to make sure wildlife not put in these these predicaments. So, you know, I'll go first in the short term. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of organizations out there that need your support, and I think the the challenge people have is how to vet them, because um, unfortunately, there's also a lot of scams out there as well. Uh, we go through the same challenge at Animalia when we're deciding which, you know, organization and conservation project to work on when we release a new animal tee, and, you know, Annalie and I can both speak to it. It's a it's a lengthy process, um, and we, we kind of go through it. We... we we investigate. We get feedback from other people in, in, in conservation. And we have conversations with them. Obviously, the average person is not going to go through that process um, when deciding who to donate to. Uh, so, the you know the best thing you can look you can can look at. Nikki mentioned it is um, seeing if that if that program is fully sanctioned and supported and certified by the local government. Um, you could also sort of look at different reviews. Um, I think one of our projects we want to do on Animalia long-term is sort of create a, a, a list of sort of trusted voices and opinions um, in the conservation space, which is something well, we obviously are trying to be one of them ourselves, but there's lots of other great ones out there. Um, you can also, frankly, just email us. Uh, we, we do a lot of investigation and work in this area. So if you come across one, and you're not sure about it. Um, you can email hello at I love and we'll do our best to to navigate you. Um, so that's just one thing that comes in mind um, to, uh, to sh- for short-term support.
1: When thinking about long-term change, I always like to highlight education, super important, especially for younger kids. If we're able to raise generations of people that really give a fuck about these causes, then I think that's when we're able to create populations of people that, Put their money where their mouth is and support causes and support nonprofits that are working to protect the planet and are working to protect wildlife. So, if you are at home right now with your kids and you're looking for a way to teach them about conservation. One resource I have found extremely valuable has been the WWF's Conservation in the Classroom initiative. They recently started um, a video series where they share, they bring in experts from the field and do Zoom calls with them, open format Q and A with kids, covering topics in conservation and Earth such as bees and ocean life and the impacts of deforestation and allow these open formats to get kids involved to where it's easily digestible content for first to 10th graders, where it's, you know, they're really able to connect with the people speaking and able to see the issues at large, but also the solutions.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's an important point you mentioned uh, regarding the financial dis- thinking Um, how in, like, the developed world people are obsessed about, you know, spending money and then getting rewards for it and, you know, collecting points, loyalties and so on. I think it would be awesome to have, like, maybe it's far-fetched, but a collab with someone like Stripe um, or even, like, some credit cards who would... Just like in a hair salon, if it's not working right now, they could provide you vouchers for the future kind of gifts and stuff that you could use in the future just to keep their cash flow going. In a similar way, like if everything you order online or, you know, there is a certain amount of money that goes towards these projects and then they would build up towards a voucher for you to get a discount if you want to make a trip to one of those locations and so on. I think it could be a good incentive to design certain behaviors that would, Encourage people to donate. Um, yeah, there are loads of things that can be done uh, around this. Uh, I think we need to be creative, active, and just get more people in.
2: Yep. And then, you know, let's talk about some of the bigger kind of cultural things. Uh, you know, one of the unfortunate things that I think this has shed a light on is how, you know, so much kind of, there's a, there's a lot more money that, goes to support exploitation today than it does conservation. Um, you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio's, the Bill Gates is of the sort of very well outliers, not the norm. And, you know, we're seeing that right now. And, and I think it's a natural reason is just sort of economics. Like you, you can turn your money into more money with funding, you know, port because you can get things you can sell versus giving money away. Um, but this this is sort of a, a difficult issue because obviously we're we're not gonna you know the solution isn't to sort of move into a you know purely socialist world where you know all money and spending is is controlled and evenly allocated and that's not realistic with with human beings um, and we have to have sort of kind of free market solutions. Uh, I have some some thoughts on this myself, but just curious on um, you know how, how do you guys both like think about this issue and. Why do you think it it is the case that, you know, so many more dollars privately go towards exploitation than go towards conservation today?
1: Well, when looking at exploitation and conservation, one thing to note is that the countries that have generally the most biodiversity are usually either the least developed or aren't the most economically strong countries. So we're thinking about countries that are already technically kind of falling behind and struggling to make, you know, their own citizens have sustainable standards of living. And on top of that, they have this responsibility because they have these amazing biodiverse spaces to also protect them. And I don't think that it should be solely their, their responsibility. I think it should be a global shared responsibility, but when you look at our capitalistic systems, instant gratification is, I guess, like what is expected when people are investing. They want money back and they want, they want to see a return and they want to see that soon. And conservation projects take decades. They take decades and decades. And I think that also ha- is like a reason why there's not a lot of, money invested in these spaces and i think a lot of it is also the demand of the people if there's no demand from people like for example whenever their you know companies started offering like solar power that came a lot because people were demanding it people were looking for other options but if there isn't such a high demand for alternative ways or ways of ecotourism, then there won't be investors investing in those spaces because there's not a market for it. So it's a complicated space, and I think there's a lot of debate and whose responsibility it is. And But at the end of the day, the moral question is, like, these spaces, um, these countries with these biodiverse lands, they're impacting everybody so it should be a responsibility that, that is shared and it, it should be um like caring about your planet and protecting your planet should be something positive that everyone should want to get involved with
3: um uh, yeah i mean it's if, if you think about even like in general any sort of donation or charity and stuff normally does not really it's not really a sustainable way of funding even mm-hmm. for humans right there has been so much debate on, about aid in Africa and the poorest countries, and so on. So, um, I think making this project self-sustainable uh, should should be the focus, um, in one way or, or another. Like um, so that they can, um, even if there is initial investment going on through the some of the activities and the spotlight and stuff, like in the long run, they can be self-sustainable and can generate income to keep going. Um, and, and designing around that would be, would be critical. I hope we would also have like in the younger generation more um, entrepreneurs that would be focused towards, um, you know, ideas and innovation and technology going into conservation. And it should be definitely encouraged um, through school and, you know, further education and so on. So that, that, that could be kind of um, another ray of hope that if people start enterprises around this um, that potentially could be also revenue generating. It does not have to be self. You know, um, if if you are doing something that's good for the environment, does not mean it's a losing money right. endeavor. Um, so yeah, I I think investing in like oil and gas right now is definitely like in the long run gonna not gonna <laughs> make you a lot of money. So uh, it's a mind mindset shift that needs to happen. Then people's money will go in the right place and still generate more money, but in a different way.
2: Yeah, there's, you know, there's a, the, the Rhino investment bond was introduced last June and there's been no data on its sort of uh, success yet. But, you know, that was sort of an interesting first time financial instrument that uh, rewards and provides sort of returns um, in a um, for growing populations. And you're kind of betting on Rhino populations growing. Um, I also think, you know, the bigger... You know, kind of opportunity, and, and we're going to eventually uh, dedicate a whole podcast to this, and I have a couple folks in the financial sector that want to talk about it, is how do we actually put economic value um, directly on wild ecosystems, rainforests, and wildlife? Um, and we're getting closer and closer to be able to do that because we know the negative economic value of you know, increased carbon and greenhouse gas emissions um, uh, in the world and the damage that they cause And so, you know, we thus can, you know, eventually do some math where we uh, can see sort of the value of wildlife and wild ecosystems because they are helping sequester and contain that. Um, And I think that to me is one of the more interesting paths forward. It's very challenging. And it also is one of those things that require sort of global alignment. Um, You know, and that's another sort of point Mm -hmm. I think worth, worth making here before we leave is the, the biggest and most impactful solutions are going to be ones done on a global level, not on a national level. And, you know, one of the silver mm-hmm. linings I hope comes out of COVID-19 that's tangentially related to this is, you know, this, this is a global pandemic. And, you know, once we do find treatments and vaccines, wherever that happens in the world, then that needs to be spread globally. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, this is sort of, you know, a, a pushback, Against sort of some of the populist movements and some of the some movements that have divided us on a on a global basis, because the biggest existential threats to humans, i.e., climate change, being one of them, need global solutions. And if we're ever going to crack a financial formula for putting value on wildlife and wild ecosystems, which I think we can do, um, that also uh, requires you know global alignment. So it's just something else that is top of mind. But we're gonna soon dedicate a whole podcast to talking about that interesting math problem and uh, bringing some experts to uh, chat chat about it with us.
3: Um, Yeah, I think thinking long term and thinking big like as a uh, on a global level instead of uh, really fragmented is definitely needed and probably the pandemic is going to push us that way.
2: Absolutely. So I think that you know kind of sums it up for this one with that we'll uh let okay. everybody get back to the day um uh, thanks for tuning in as always you can send us any any questions any follow-ups um we're gonna put the link to nikki's great work um and how you can support her uh feel free to ask us anything anytime and we'll do our best to answer you point you towards the right resource and if you have any ideas around future topics you want us to discuss or people you want us to interview and and sort of chat with, uh, please. Let us know that as well.
1: Thank you guys for next time. Yeah,
2: thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye.